Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 26, and the word of the sovereign Lord reads, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord. In these circumstances, would I ever deny him? The father looked at him very intently and then asked him, but what if things got really hard? The young man maintained his resolve and was resolute and he said, I would never, ever, ever deny Jesus. And after a few moments, the father asked his teen son, but what if someone were to take your little brother or your little sister and threaten them? What if they took a gun and put it to their head and they told you that either you deny Christ or I'm going to kill them? What about then? Will you deny him then? And the tears began to fill this young man's eyes as he came face to face with the reality that his own faithfulness that he was so confident in moments before was not as certain that he might as he might have imagined it was. Because hypothetically, he knows what the answer is supposed to be. Yes, I would never deny Jesus. But in reality, his certainty that he could give those, that answer under those circumstances, that certainty that he had began to crumble at the prospect of such a high cost. And he began to wonder even about his own resolve. Now, does this mean that this young teenage man was not saved? No, it's not what it means at all. It just means that he's never come face to face with how following Christ might cost him more than he could expect. But more importantly, he had never realized that he might be overestimating his own ability to remain faithful in difficult times. You see, here is the truth that we need to hold on to. This is the truth that it should be the anchor for your soul. Your hope is not your own ability to remain faithful to Christ. Your hope is completely trusting the one who actually is faithful and who promised to finish the work that he started within you. That is the truth. The truth is that. And that's what we're going to unpack today. That's the truth that we need to take heart today and rest our hearts and minds in. That our hope of salvation is not in our own ability to remain faithful to Christ. 
Do you understand that? It's not within our own ability to remain faithful to Christ. It is about our, it's not about our own ability to never falter under any circumstances. Our hope is to hold on to the one who is faithful and who has promised to complete the work that he began in us, even at times when we are unfaithful. Or as my, fr- my friend Rob Reese said, it's not your own faith, which so often can be weak and fragile, but in your faith, no matter how small, in the faithful one. This is the underlying truth that we will come face to face with in this particular text here. What saves us is not our ability to never, ever falter under any circumstances. What saves us is the faithfulness of God to keep us in the palm of his hand and trusting in that even when we fall down, even when we prove to be unfaithful. And if there's anything else that you leave here today remembering, of all the things that we're going to cover today and all the theological truths we're going to uncover this is the one I really would hope that you would remember and rely on, right? Your hope is the faithfulness of God to keep you in his hand even when we fall down and even when we find that we're not really that strong and that we are at times unfaithful. Now, with that being said, today's text is a subject that if you're a Christian, you're going to be very familiar with. This is something that we've heard about, we've talked about. In fact, in most of your Bibles, um, this text is preceded by the heading above it that says, Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Now, I don't have to tell you that those headings are not part of the scriptures, right? That's just, okay, just making sure. Neither are the, anybody's, like, if you have a study Bible, the notes at the bottom, like, those notes are not inspired or inerrant in any fashion, right? They're helpful, right? Okay. And by the way, even the numbers and the chapter divisions, that's added on too, so. But that being said, you know, this is so familiar with this. It has a heading for us to be able to find it. Jesus foretells Peter's denial. This is a story we know about. In this text, we know that Jesus is going to predict that the disciples are going to abandon him, and Peter's going to pridefully deny that that could even happen to him. And then Jesus warns him before the rooster crows that Peter's going to disown Jesus, not once, but three times. This is something we're familiar with because, because this is an important part of the gospel narrative. You know, every, I mean, if you talk about the gospel, you ultimately talk about Peter's denial and the, the apostles or the disciples running away. But as we've seen several times in the book of Mark, even though that we're familiar with, what's, with this text and what it's about, um, there's a lot more here than just simply the things or the details that we're familiar with. And that's what we're going to see today. You see, this text here has a lot to teach us um, Not just about Peter's pride, but about God's sovereignty, about God's divine plan, about human weakness, about the hope of Christ's promise. But especially, you will see, this is about the nature of God's glorious grace. Because in the end, what we're going to see is that not only does Judas turn his back on Christ, but all 12 of the disciples will betray Jesus in their own way. Right? That is the sum of Jesus' warning here, that, that Jesus is predicting that the other 11 disciples will turn their back on him as, as well as Judas. Right? And what we need to keep in mind is this warning is on the heels of the warning that he gave about Judas betraying him. It's not... 
It's not coincidental that Jesus is warning both groups of people, Judas and the eleven, about, about this. And what we need to see is, is in the end, the disciples, all of them will fail Christ. All of them do. They will prove themselves in this moment to be unfaithful. But what we'll see moving forward is that Judas is going to be condemned for his part and his unfaithfulness, but the other 11 will not be condemned, but rather they're going to be given a hope after the warning, and ultimately they will be rescued from their unfaithfulness. And in light of that, we, I think, must ask the question, then what's the difference? What is the difference between Judas and the 11? And if they're all going to fail Jesus, then why does Jesus get con- Judas get condemned, but the other 11 not? What's the difference between them? I think this is the question that we need to keep in mind as we walk through this text together. This should be the thought that we should be holding on to, and this is certainly going to be the question we're going to come back to at the end of this message to, to wrap things up. But in the meantime, turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verse 26, and it reads, And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. And so what we realized is last week we left off with that verse. As we saw last week, Jesus and his disciples had finished celebrating the Passover. They had they'd celebrated the meal, right? And then Jesus then interpreted that meal in light of its historical and, and um, it, in light of its uh, redeeming uh, quality. And then after that, they did what they traditionally do. They sang a hymn, as they, uh, which is the Psalm 15 through 18. And after they finished singing, they begin to make their way to the Mount of Olives. And so what we need to realize is they've now left this building and they're moving their way towards the Mount of Olives. And as they walk along, Jesus begins to explain to these 11 disciples what is about to happen. Verse 27 says, And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And the thing that we need to keep in mind here is that this is Thursday night of Passion Week. Jesus was within a few hours, literally within a few hours of being arrested. I mean, there's not much more that's going to happen, and then they're going to come for him. And then after that, he's going to be hauled before the Sanhedrin. He's going to be tried there. He's going to be taken before Pilate, and finally... You know, he's going to uh, try not to have him crucified, but instead have him beaten to a bloody pulp. And then less than 24 hours from where they are right now, he will be nailed to the cross. And he will die. And he will be buried in a tomb. All of that before sundown of the next day, which is, which is Friday. And so the climax of Christ's redemptive work on the earth is very, very near now. Right? Things are going to change very rapidly from this point forward. And in light of that, Jesus is taking the time to now tell them and to point out to them what's about to happen. He's going to tell them right, that things are going to happen, and he's going to tell them how they're reacting or how they react to what's going to happen. He says, you will all fall away, which probably was a, a big surprise to all of them because they believed you know, that they were true and sincere. They believed that they were on the cusp of Jesus becoming the king of Israel, and it's all going to change and get better from there. Now, we need to admit when Jesus says you will all fall away, that he's not being ambiguous here. He's saying very clearly, all of you are going to fall away. Right? All of you are going to turn your backs on me. All of you are going to run for your lives. 
right? That's clear from the text. Jesus is not leaving any room for anybody else. He's saying all of you. But then what is really important here is, we, is, is that we understand what he means when he says that, that they will fall away. Because there's something, there's something within many evangelical Christians today where we just want to look at this falling away by the disciples as something that, that is bad. It's certainly bad. But somehow it's not as bad as what Judas did. That's an attitude that's really prevalent you know, in our modern church today. That, that What they did was bad, but it wasn't as bad as what Judas did. As, as if Judas's failure and what he did was worse than what they did. You see, there's something in Christians that tend to minimize the shortcomings of the 11 disciples compared to Judas. That somehow these men turning their backs on Christ is, in, in this critical moment of his life is just merely a mistake. Right? A, a mistake that could be easily forgiven, but what Judas did, now that's unforgivable, is really kind of the attitude that people have. But understand, this is a false assumption, brothers and sisters. This is why it's important that we understand what Jesus is actually talking about in this text. He said, you will all fall away. And this Greek word, fall away, that gets translated here, is the word skandalizo. Skandalizo. This is the word where we, the root of this word is where we get the word scandalize or scandal. So you can see there's something more being hinted at here than just, you know, turning your back. We need to recognize there's more than just. Down, and things don't end up going very well. They reject him. The crowd says, or it says, or the crowd says, you know, is this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and and Simon, and are not his sisters with us? And they scandalizo or took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives, and in his own household. In this context, this crowd that knew Jesus was offended by him and the message that he was preaching. They visibly disapproved of him. They were turning their backs on him metaphorically because they despised him for what he was teaching. Now, notice the attitude that this word is carrying with it. Another way that this word gets translated in Mark is the idea of sinning. Because this word means to sin. Notice Mark chapter 9, it says, beginning in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to scandalizo, it's the same word, to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to scandalizo, to sin, then cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled then with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to scandalizo or to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to scandalizo, to sin, tear it out. It will be better for you to enter the kingdom of God 
with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm die, does not die and the fire is not quenched. You see, this word skandalizo carries with it an idea of great transgression. Right? This is not just a simple little mistake or misunderstanding. Notice Jesus' Jesus's warning against it. Right? This is not a small matter. This is a transgression against God himself. This is a transgression that is punishable by, by hell. Right? This, this falling away is a very serious accusation that he's accusing them of. In fact, in Mark chapter 4, we see the usage of this that parallels very closely to what Jesus is talking about here. Mark chapter 4, in the parable of the sower, beginning in verse 16, he says, And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The one, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they, scandalizo, fall away. This is a really clear picture of what he's talking about that's going to happen to them. He's saying that there are those who seem to have strong faith that when persecution comes their way, they will fall away. You see, what Jesus is saying here is this falling away is a serious sin against him. This isn't just a momentary lapse of judgment that can be swept under the rug. This isn't going to be some simple mistake that's not going to have consequences. This is, not, this is going to be a rejection of Christ himself. Right? Their falling away is them rejecting Christ. In fact, I think the New Living Test, uh, Translation, and I don't quote it often, but I think that it do a really good job of really getting at the, the heart of what Jesus is saying. They render what he says this way, and all of you will desert me. Let that sink in a little bit. I mean, that's really more to the point than just falling away. I mean, that's, that's really the issue, right? Because that's the truth. It's easy for us to, to look at certain sins Right? And, and think that it's okay. Right? All of us really look at certain sins and maybe consciously, sometimes unconsciously, we look at them and we see them as not a big deal or seriously. We tend to look down on certain sins as very offensive. We know, right, that's hateful to God, but then we will wink in others. Let's just be honest with ourselves. There's something in us that will kind of give people a pass for their sins because it just seems acceptable. For example, and I think I'm using this because I think it's the clearest example, especially in America. We will, as Christians, call same-sex relationships and adultery sin that clearly offends God, right? That when, when married people end up having relationships with other people, we call that right a sin, a grievous sin. But then, I never, for the life of me, I've seen parents and grandparents giggle and wink at their teenagers and their young adults, adult children's sexual activity. Like they'll even joke about what they're doing. They will never ever have the conversation that what you're doing is wrong. They'll even kind of joke about it. Sometimes even some parents will go so far as provide birth control because, you know, they will excuse the fornication of their children before marriage because they don't see it as a big deal. 
I mean, let's just be honest. In America, we don't see it as a big deal. We'll rationalize it as just normal behavior, right? Everyone's doing it. Everyone's going to do it. I mean, what do you expect? They're teenagers. I mean, that's really the kind of the past that we're going to give them. In fact, we, as a culture, will encourage our young people. This is what blows my mind, by the way. We will encourage young people to wait to get married. And we'll say, you need to wait to get married. You need to wait. You need to make sure you have a job. You need to have a house. You need to have two cars and, and a 401k and a, you know, and a retirement plan and $100,000 in the bank. You need to wait. You need to wait. We'll talk about waiting all the time about marriage, but we won't talk about waiting for the benefits of marriage. We don't have that conversation with our kids. But it is a big deal. Let's just, let's just be honest with ourselves. It is. I want you to understand if you have children or grandchildren and they're sexually active before they're married, they are not right with God. They are in danger. Let's just be honest and real with ourselves about that. We minimize sins that are direct offenses to a holy and righteous God, and we do so to our own peril and our loved ones as well. We tend to look at certain sins as if it's not a big deal. As many people tend to look at what the disciples did as really compared to Judas, not really a big deal. But what they did, their falling away, their turning against Christ, was an offense against a holy and righteous and just God. Think about this. The Messiah that they've been following for three and a half years, the one they expected to be the king of Israel, the one who saved their lives, not just once, but twice from, from a storm at sea, their hero, their mentor, even their close friend, a person that they believe they loved, all of them, all of them will turn their back on him as if he was a nobody. They will all abandon and betray him, knowing full well that his enemies will seek to kill him. Let that just settle in. That's what they did. The transgression is every bit as grievous as what Judas did. I'm going to say that one more time so you don't misunderstand me. Their transgression is every bit as grievous as Judas's transgression was. Every bit as evil and sinful. They will abandon their master at the first sign of trouble. They will abandon him to his fate. And because of that, they're just as guilty. Every bit as guilty as Judas was. To deny that truth is to deny the nature of our sin. And, and they were all guilty. But there's more that we need to see in this text. This expression, you will all fall away. Again, the English doesn't fully communicate for us uh, the depth that's being expressed in the, the Greek language here. The verb fall away actually comes from a verb in the Greek that is in the future tense, indicative in its mood, in passive in its voice. And I know you're like going, I really wanted to know that this morning. <laughs> but it's important, right? Because what does it mean? Well, future tense, obviously, you know what that means. It's going to happen in the future. And we know it's going to be near future. We're within hours of this happening. But the indicative mood means it's a statement of fact. That's what it means. This will happen. It's not a proposition that maybe it'll happen. It is a certainty. It will happen. They will fall away. But the verb is also passive in its voice. 
which means they as the subject really aren't active in the verb. And this is really important for us to see because what this means is the falling away is actually something that's going to happen to them. They're passive in this and not active in this. Or in other words, there's something outside of them that's acting upon them that's going to cause them to fall away. Now, make no mistake, I want you to hear me. They themselves will fall away. They will abandon Christ. And they do so because of their own choices and because of the hardness of their own hearts. But when things get hard, they will choose to leave Christ behind. But the thing we need to realize is they're not the actual one causing them falling away. Something else is going to cause them to fall away. And this is important for us to, to, to note. Right? So what is it that causes them to fall away? Is it Jesus' arrest? Well, yes, technically, but there, there's still something more. Is it the fact that they're running for their lives and they're scared to death? Yes, certainly. Right? But there's still something foundationally more that Jesus is driving at. I want you to look at what Jesus says next. He says, you will all fall away for it is written. Those little words right there change everything. Let that settle in for a second. The word for in this text is very important to us. You cannot separate these phrases now because of that word for. They're connected. And that word for can be translated as the word because. So in other words, we can, we can phrase what Jesus is saying is, you will fall away because it is written. The reason why you will fall away is because it's written. You will fall away because the word of God says you will. You will fall away because it's been ordained by God that you will fall away. That's his plan, that you will fall away. That God is going to use your weakness. God is going to use your unfaithfulness to put you in a position to achieve his end through your falling away. You will fall away because it is written. And it is written that I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is a quote from Zechariah 13 verse 7. It is a quote about the Messiah and his martyrdom. And notice, right, how Jesus quotes it. He says, it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The thing that we need to see here is the reason why they will fall away is because Jesus is going to be killed. They're going, they're going to abandon him to his doom. But I want you to notice the author of this. The author of both the killing of Christ and the author of the scattering of the disciples is represented by the word I. I will strike the shepherd and the result will be the sheep will be scattered. Well, who is I? It's God the Father. God is the one who is in control. God is the one who will strike the shepherd. He is the one who will put Christ to death. Let us never forget this fact. The Jews absolutely handed Christ over to the Romans, and the Romans drove the nails into his hands. And he died on the cross because of their actions. He was betrayed by Judas, and because of his action, he, he died. But ultimately, ultimately, God is the one who's driving this in history. 
Remember, the Bible says that he was pleased to crush him. God the Father crushed his own son. This is happening by God's divine plan of redemption. And as a result, he is the one who will scatter the sheep. He is the one that's causing of their falling away. You see, this is part of God's divine plan. This is part of his divine decree. What we see in this text is more evidence of his sovereign hand. God is firmly in control. In this moment where it can seem like everything's out of control as Christ is rushing headlong to the greatest, the greatest tragedy of human history, the death of the, of, of the spotless Son of God, God is firmly in control. And he ordained for all of these things to happen this way. Now, does that mean that their falling away is, is God's fault? No, not even close. As we saw two weeks ago with Judas, Judas was responsible for the things that he did, right? Because Judas did the things that he wanted to do. But God ordained to use Judas's actions to accomplish his own purpose. And it's the same thing here. When Christ is arrested and the disciples abandon him, they will do so because that's what they're going to want to do in the moment, right? They're going to do so because they are cowards pretending to be brave. They're going to run away because they're faithless men who are going to be, who, who are trying to pr pretend to be faithful. These are men who will abandon Christ in the moment that he's arrested because they're selfish, hard-hearted men. They're going to do this because that's what, they're, what they want to do. That's what their nature is. And so they are ultimately still responsible for their actions, but God is, and God is not making them do anything they don't want to do, but God in his sovereignty has ordained to use their failure and their unfaithfulness to accomplish his own purposes. Jesus is saying that this is going to happen. And not only because you are overestimating your bravery, not only because you really are, have a false sense of confidence, but because God has ordained for it to happen as evidenced by the scriptures that has been written in. You are going to fail me. But, and this is such an important word here. Again, notice the word but. How one word changes everything. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. It is so important for us to see what's happening here. Jesus says, you are going to fall away, and that is a fact, because it's the divine will and the plan of God. I'm going to be killed, and you are all going to turn and run. But, but in spite of that, in spite of your failure, there is hope for you. In spite of that, there's hope for you. You see, Jesus is giving them in that moment a reason to still have hope. He says that you're, you know, that you're going to do all of this, but I'm going to be resurrected. And after that happens, we will be reunited and reconciled to each other. Notice the language here. After I'm stricken down, I will be resurrected and I will go before you to Galilee. What does that imply? It implies that they're going to be together in Galilee. Now, some people will argue that this means that Jesus will meet them personally in Galilee. In, in, you know, uh, and some people believe that Jesus will actually lead them personally to Galilee like a shepherd. And the thing is, is they make good arguments both ways. But that's not even really the issue, I don't think. Right? What's important is the implication. 
the implication of the promise that in spite of this egregious failure of these men and their unfaithfulness and their betrayal and their sin against him, Jesus will be with them again. I want you to notice how Jesus, what Jesus says. You will scandalizo, fall away. You will abandon me and I'm going to die. But after that, I'm raised up. We're going to be together. He offers them hope even after their transgression. Now, let's contrast that to what he said to Judas. In Judas, in Mark chapter 14, verse 21, just a few verses before, he says, For the Son of Man is going as is written of him. I mean, just like what's happening with these other disciples. This is ordained by God, right? This is what God has ordained to happen. But then he says to Judas, But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better if that man had never been born. Notice the contrast of what happens as a result of their failures. Judgment is pronounced on Judas for his sin, but the others are given a promise of hope. This is a contrast that we can't avoid. Right? It's there in the text. It's there as plain as day. Because the truth is, all of these men fail Christ. They all abandon him. All of these men value themselves above Christ. All of these men are spiritually blind and don't understand who Christ really is. All these men betray Christ in some fashion. But why the difference, the radical difference in outcome? Now, some people will say, well, that's just because Judas, what he did is inherently worse than what the others did. But that doesn't stand to reason. If we're going to be people of the book, then then our opinions have to be informed by the book. And you can't find a scriptural basis for that. The Bible doesn't, doesn't say what Judas did was worse than what the disciples did. It's just not in the text. Peter was guilty of a great sin. The others were guilty. Right? You can't find the scriptural basis for that. In fact, let's just take a look at what Peter himself did. Peter said, even though they all fall away, I will not. Now, it's easy to dismiss Peter as just a simple boast because he's ignorant. And, we, we, and, and, and praise the Lord for Peter. Like, because he's a great leader in the church, but we get to see his ignorance. And I go, praise the Lord. So I'm, it's okay if I'm ignorant from time to time. right? Okay, I'm ignorant a lot of times, all right? But that's okay. But Peter is guilty right here of a great sin. Greater than we can imagine. Okay? Peter, in this moment, is full of what? Pride. He is so prideful. Right? What does the Bible say about people that are about the proud, that God will cast down the proud? I mean, pride is an issue with God. Right? He says that he's, he says, this is not going to happen to me. Right? <laughs> I'm just too good for that. Oh, Jesus, you can count on me. I'm way too committed to you and what you're doing. You know me. I'm Peter. I mean, like, come on. Now, these other guys, I mean, they'll probably fall away. I mean, because you see it in the text. He throws them under the bus. He said, they'll probably fall away, right? But not me, right? I mean, especially those weaker guys, you know. Peter is not only being prideful here. Peter's being downright arrogant here. He's really overestimating his abilities. He's really full of himself. And, it, and, it's, and the thing is, we've talked about all the time, it's easy to be that way when the sun is shining, right? It's easy to be confident when things are good. Yeah, you know, I'll follow Jesus anywhere. Yeah, I'll go to jail for my faith. 
I would die for my faith. It's easy to say those things when things aren't that hard. But what happens when things get real? The second thing that Peter is guilty of is not only pride, but he's guilty of not believing what Christ is telling him. This is an issue that we often overlook, right? Faith is defined as believing God, believing his promises. Peter isn't taking Jesus at his word. In fact, Peter will persist in saying that he will not fall away even after Jesus corrects him. He, in essence, is calling Jesus a liar. That's the implication. Jesus, you know what you're talking about. It's not going to happen. Kind of reminds you back of, you know, Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. If you remember that, right? Peter didn't believe Jesus' words. It reads, And he began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected at the, by, the hand, by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You remember that? We had a long conversation about that, right? Peter pridefully right, rebuked Jesus, demonstrating that he's still spiritually blind. Right? He doesn't believe Jesus. Peter is guilty of both pride and unbelief in the words of Christ. These are serious, egregious sins before Christ. But understand, it actually gets worse than that, because notice what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night which is very emphatic. It's like saying, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You see, what he's telling Peter is, not only will you abandon me and run for your life, but you're going to deny me. You're going to deny that you even know me. You see, the Greek word that Jesus uses here means to despise or to disown Peter is, is going to literally disown Jesus. Again, something else to let sink in. He is, he's not just going to run and hide. He's going to publicly disavow Jesus. Right? This is, this is the, the question that a certain father asked his son. Will you deny Christ if someone had a gun to your little brother's head? And the young man began to cry. He is telling Peter, you're going to disown me completely. In fact, you're not going to just deny me. You're going to deny me and publicly disown me three times. And this is important because Peter's three times denial is equal to a complete denial. You see, in the Bible, and especially when it comes to the Jewish texts, a three times repetition has this idea of the fullest expression of something. It's like Isaiah when he says, he doesn't just say holy is the Lord. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That three times expression is expressing the fullest idea of holiness. God is the epitome of holiness. This triple repetition represents a full expression of something. And Jesus is saying to Peter, you're going to deny me not one time, not two times, but three times. In essence, the truth of what Peter's denial is, is a full repudiation, a full denial of his relationship with Christ. Peter's going to fully, completely turn his back on Jesus. Peter's going to fully deny even knowing him. Peter's faith is going to collapse. Peter's going to prove in that moment, he's just like Judas. He has nothing in him. Hear me. Peter has nothing in him worthy of redeeming. Peter has nothing in him worthy of redeeming. Like 
everyone else in the world. He is completely and totally depraved. He is still partially spiritually blind to the wickedness of his own heart. His pride is evidence of his still hardened heart. As well as the other disciples too, it says. But he emphatically, but he said emphatically, if I must die, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And Peter calls Jesus is a liar, in essence, and say, I'll never deny you. And the disciples don't want to be, they don't want to lose face. They don't want to see, be seen as the weak ones. And they are like, yeah, me too. You see, all of these men, all of them are an egregious sin. All of them are blind to their sinful nature. All of them are prideful. All of them will abandon Christ. And so all of them will be guilty of a great sin against Christ. But why does Judas suffer the punishment and not the other 11. Now, there are some people who would say, well, the disciples had something in them that just made them different from Judas. I've heard that some would say that the deciding difference between Judas and the rest of the 11 is, you know, whatever they had within them, it was either something that who they were in their nature, right? Or, or, or a true faith where, where, where Judas's faith wasn't real, or there's something, you know, there's some deciding factor. The problem is, number one, you can't support that with the scriptures. These men, all of them, at this point, were not more faithful than the others. Right? These men were not better off, morally speaking. These men had nothing in them deserving of salvation. And they had nothing within them that warranted God's grace and mercy upon them. They all stood equally unworthy before God. None of them was any better off than the others. And all of them were guilty of sin deserving of hell. So then we come right back to the question, what is the difference between Judas and the others? And the answer simply is one word. It's grace. That is the difference between Judas and the other 11 is the grace of God. It is the grace and mercy that he had on the 11, but not on Judas. Why? Because it was God's plan. That's why. And the truth is inescapable. That's the inescapable truth. The difference is God's grace, right? But so many people will want to deny this. They will argue that there is something that Judas did that made him especially heinous. Right? That made him especially beyond redemption. There was something that he did that made him disqualified. And that there's something that the 11 did that kept them somehow, someway qualified enough right, to deserve better than Judas. But that's a dangerous proposition. Because if, because if it is true that the reason why people, why a person is condemned or why a person isn't saved isn't so much what God does, but what is found in them that warrants salvation, then we're all in trouble. Which, by the way, is completely contrary to the gospel. The gospel says there's nothing in us that's worthy. We are all equally guilty and unworthy of grace. We're all hard-hearted. To say the otherwise is just to deny the gospel, which tells us that all mankind is guilty and, and unable to make himself right with God. There's nothing within man 
by his own actions that, that, that will cause God to turn to him and rescue him. There's nothing in us that demands God rescue us. There's nothing in these 11 that demanded God rescue them and then condemn Jesus. Now, some will say, well, the difference between the 11, right, and Judas is they really believed and Judas didn't really believe. Well, in light of what we just covered here, can you make that argument? No, you can't make that argument. The fact of the matter is, is in this moment, in this moment, none of them truly fully believed. None of them truly believed in the sense that we would associate with saving faith. They all, every one of them, abandoned him. And if Christ hadn't come back to them, risen from the dead, they would have stale stayed exactly where they were, completely abandoned to their hope. They all betrayed him. They all disowned him. They were all guilty. The only difference between them is the grace of God, and that is it. God, according to the counsel of his will and grace, had mercy on the leaven and not on Judas, which invariably causes those who struggle with the sovereignty of Christ and the sovereignty of God to say, well, that's just not fair. That's the popular retort. That's not fair. Well, what is fair? What is fair is for God to send them all to hell. That, that's fair. That's just. Fair is for all of them to be condemned. Fairness is for all of them to get what they deserve, right? Fairness is that they all deserve condemnation. It's not fair of God to say to Judas, we're going to, you know, that you're going to get, it's not only unfair, I mean, excuse me, not only is it fair for God to say to Judas, you're going to get what you rightfully deserve. That's actually justice, by the way. It's justice that what Judas got. It's not unfair for God to say to the 11, you're not going to get what you deserve. That's called mercy. You see, it's not unfair for God to give people what they deserve. And it's not unfair of God to give mercy to those who deserve something else. God has a right to give grace to whom he wills. Well, that just don't seem right to me. I've heard that one too. Well, that's okay. But let's let the Apostle Paul answer the, the question. In Romans chapter 9, Paul writes this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see, people have been wrestling with this question right here of God's sovereignty for 2,000 years. Saying the same exact thing. Does, does this make God unfair or unjust? And what's Paul's answer? By no means. And what's the answer? How does he justify it? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's the words of the living, the living God. So then it depends not on human will or exertion or what they try to do, but God, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now Paul, being a very educated man and who'd preached the gospel by this point for many, many years, already anticipates the next objection and, and he, he says it for them. You will say to me then, why does, God find, why does he find fault for who can resist his will? This is one of my favorite lines in the Bible right here. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? 
Will what the molded say to its molder, why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of, for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make, his, make known his riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? You see, the difference... What we just have to come to terms with, the difference between Judas, who gets what he rightfully deserves, by the way, and the other 11 who are spared what they rightfully deserve by God's grace, the difference is just that, God's grace. God ordained to use Judas's own life and decisions for his purpose to display his glory about the atoning death of Christ. God uses Judas's failure to demonstrate his wrath, and he uses the, the 11 other disciples' failure to demonstrate his incredible grace and mercy. The difference is the grace of God. Now, with that overwhelming truth, there's some who see this in you know, a negative light. I want you to know this truth right here is the basis for our hope. Right? You see, what you need to do is settle in your heart that salvation is the work of of God and not man. Understand, a person does have to believe to be saved. We must respond in faith. There is no question about that. Right? There is no question. You must believe to be saved. That is what you must do. The Bible makes that really clear. But that salvation, that faith, is enabled by God's own hand. The only way a person can get to that place of faith is by the grace of God. Secondly, you need to settle in your hearts the truth that God has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. God is sovereign and in control. And the truth is we're not. Praise the Lord for that, right? God does what he does according to his own plan and his will. And our response is to do what? To trust in that. To depend upon that. To rely on that. We trust for God to be God. Third, we need to see the hope that is in this truth. So many people are hung up on what they think is fair, but they lose sight of the hope that's guaranteed because of God's sovereignty. In fact, I'm going to come back to the truth that we started with, just to kind of reiterate this. Your hope is not in your own ability to remain faithful to Christ. Your hope is completely trust in the one who actually is faithful and who promised to finish the work that he started in you. Your hope is not that there's something in you that, that you can do that will cause you to be faithful enough, long enough for God to save you. That is not your hope. Because if that's your hope, then you're hopeless. Because you don't have enough faith to be saved. You don't have enough in you to be faithful enough, long enough to be saved. You can't do it. It's not within you. You don't have enough strength. You don't have enough ability to endure. Your hope is not being faithful enough to remain in God's graces. Because you'll never be able to do it. As it's, as, uh, it's been said multiple times, and I believe this with all my heart, 
if I could lose my salvation, I absolutely would. If there is room for me, at the slightest bit of room for me to mess it up, it's a guaranteed fact I'm going to mess it up. Your hope is to trust the one who actually is faithful, Christ Jesus, right? And he was faithful and he remains faithful. And because he is faithful and because he is sovereign, you can believe his promise that he will finish the work that he has began in you, even in the times when you yourself are unfaithful. Let me remind you of R.C. Sproul's words again. Because God glorifies all those he justifies, we know that no person with true faith can be cut off finally from salvation. However, even the elect may fall into gross sin and even deny Jesus as Peter did. Although such people will repent before they die, it is far better if they never fall away, even temporarily. The fact is God is in control. That God is sovereign and that is the basis of our hope to be saved. That is the basis, brothers and sisters, of our hope to be saved. And that's the basis for you to celebrate. Because if you, if you have repented and believed the gospel, if you've turned to Christ in faith, and he has changed your heart, and you have the spirit living inside of you, you are guaranteed, you are guaranteed that no matter what happens in this world, and no matter how many times you fall down and make a mess of things, he will be faithful to carry you home. That is the hope that we're holding on to. And that is the hope that we see here. God ordained for these 11 men to make it. Look at all the way through Mark, how we've been and how they have been wrong over and over again. How they've been ignorant over and over again. How they've been they've misunderstood and spiritually blind over and over again. And what's the common thread that's kept them all this time and that caused them to then rise up and be leaders in the church? It's not anything else but the grace of God that God ordained that these men, will, this is who they would be. Right? Repent and believe the gospel, the words of Christ. And if we do that, then we can depend on the fact that he will finish the work that he's started in us. Now, some will say, well, then if that's true, then why do we evangelize? God will save who he will. Well, God controls not only the ends, but also the means. And God has ordained for all of us to participate in the work of salvation. All of us. He has called all of us to go out into the world and do what? To sow the seed, to preach the gospel. Right? You'll never hear me say, I led someone to salvation. I don't do anything. All I do is obey the command of God to go preach the gospel and trust the fact that when I preach the gospel to someone that God has prepared their hearts to hear that, that it will grow up into faith and salvation. My job is not to know how God works behind the scenes. My job is to do what he called me to do, is everywhere I go, preach the gospel to every living creature, trusting that God will do what God will do. And then when I get to heaven, I will look back and see his glorious manifold wisdom of what he's doing. And I will praise him along with all of you that God is God and we're not. Let us trust in that truth. The truth, again, is your hope is not your faithfulness and your ability to remain faithfulness. Your hope is the one who is faithful, who has promised to finish what he started in. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.com. 
www.thepurposeofgiving.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.